There's this quote I heard once that said, the only man that you ever hope is truly better than you is your son. (laughs) Super true. Man, honey, man, not woman. And I sense that with Robbie. When I see Robbie as he grows, uh, he is, uh, in every way, I hope that he exceeds everything that I've ever able to do uh, in life. And it's, it's not just, it's not like a begrudging uh, recognition that there are other men who better me in things, but it's a heartfelt desire that he would truly be better than me in every, in every way. And, and, and converse that on the opposite side of that, it's one of the greatest fears that I have that I've talked about before is if, uh, if one of our kids if Robbie or any of our kids fell into to grievous sin or walked away from the faith or walked away from God and the, just the terror and the, and, the, and the fear I would have for him in that situation. And you put those two together and you can kind of get a sense of how David is feeling when he wrote this psalm. This psalm he wrote on the occasion when his own son, his, first, his son Absalom, had turned against him had turned against the Lord and was seeking to take from David everything and take the kingship and take the city away from him. Just the terror, the sadness, the fear, the anxiety that that must have caused for him uh, is, is almost more than we could imagine. And maybe you're struggling with some fear and anxiety from something you feel you can't control. And if so, that this psalm uh, is for you. The psalm is for all of us. So if you would please stand uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word as we read. This is, we're going to look today at Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes, and many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are shield about me my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I laid down and I slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek and you break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and your blessing be on your people. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Please be seated. I'm reading this this uh, book, and in the book, it had uh, it's talking about this case study or this documentary uh, with of kids who are suffering from OCD. These these terrible disorders where kids are have these compulsions to do things over and over again. There's one, a girl named Imogen, and her compulsion is that she uh, has this compulsion that she has to tap on every surface she runs across, and if she doesn't, her mind is filled with these horrible, terrible fears that all of her family will be killed or die, tragically. There's another boy named Josh, uh, and his compulsion is that he has to, every movement he makes with his body, he has to equalize with making the same movement with the other half of his body. In other words, if he goes to shake someone's hand with his right hand, he has to shake someone's hand with his left hand. 
And if he doesn't, he feels disoriented and and suffers from deep panic attacks. And there's a third boy named Jack. He is suffering from just classic germaphobe where he is hyper aware that the world and everything in it is covered with germs so that he can't, uh, he can't eat, he can't drink out of a bottle, he can't do anything that he hasn't personally sanitized himself. He can't leave his house without wearing rubber gloves and washing his hands over and over and over again. He has this compulsion. Uh, all these kids have these awful compulsions that are fueled by these fears in their head. And as I was, I was reading this part in this book and thinking about this documentary and, and at the same time meditating on this passage, it kind of struck me that, you know, we're not really all that different. It's really not, it's, it's a really just, it's not a, it's not a difference of kind, but more of magnitude. We all have a tendency to focus uh, on the things that our mind tells us and the fears that we have, uh, and that causes us to break down into anxiety and into fear. Well, as the documentary went on, what happened with these children was they, would inter- they introduced them into this intensive treatment where they, uh, they, caused them to, they, they, they caused them to relearn different behaviors, different thoughts, different values, and to focus uh, on that what they learned to be true more than what their brains were telling them. And in that process... As you see them go through the process, there were tears and fear and breakdowns and anxiety, uh, and they went, they were, they suffered through that treatment. But at the end of it, they made these massive gains where they were able to, at the end, not have be perfect in a fallen world. Nothing is perfect, but when they were able to focus on what they had learned to be true, they were able to go on and live somewhat normal lives. And the same is true for us. I don't know about you, but my head tells me all kind of different things. Uh, And I have a tendency to believe those things. But the Bible tells me something different that's true about God and who God is and who I am in Christ. Uh, And those things, by focusing on those things, learn what I've learned to be true about God are the things that free me from those compulsive thoughts that cause those repetitive, fearful behaviors. And the same is true for David. You can almost feel it, see it. In the first part of this psalm, he is focused on what his mind sees, what he feels to be true. And because when that happens, his problems seem to be insurmountable. Uh, he is immersed in the natural condition of man, which is anxiety. Seeing with our eyes, feeling with our hearts, and being afraid. So much so that in the beginning verses of the psalm, you can hear him almost melting down uh, as all earthly reasons to trust God begin to dissolve in the face of these unbelievable problems that he's facing, this threat that he's facing. But when he focused what he had learned to be true about God through his experience with God, his hope was restored Uh, And he was restored to a supernatural trust in who God was that rescued him from it. And that trust came, that supernatural trust came from refocusing on who Jesus or who God is and who he was in God. And the same is true for us. So this psalm teaches us. Really, the big idea out of it, Psalm 3, is, is, 
is a psalm that helps all of us in our daily spiritual battles to, uh, to move out of a natural state of anxiety and into a supernatural state of trust. And that happens when we remember who Jesus is and what he's done for us. So let's look at that as we go through it. First, our natural state of anxiety. Uh, I am not a morning person. I don't, that's partially because I spent the first 18 years of my, uh, of my adult life as a musician playing in clubs. We wouldn't get home until 3, 4 in the morning, and my circadian rhythms are just forever wonky <laughs> and off. But it also has something to do with the way I wake up in the morning and the voices in my head that tend to greet me when I first open my eyes and gain consciousness. It goes something like this. I'll have my head on the pillow and I'll feel the softness of the bed and the comfort of the bed and then there's a voice in my head that'll say, Hey Rob, wake up man. We want to talk to you about the mortgage. You know, the interest rates are going up. And we want to talk to you about that stuff that Nisa said to you yesterday, man. That was super uncool and you need to deal with that. Uh, we're worried about the kids. We need to talk to you about that. Uh, we're pretty convinced uh, that everyone at work is plotting against you. And we need to talk about that. Those people that left the church... Yeah, we're pretty sure that means the church is going to fail. So we need you to get up right now so we can talk to you about that stuff. That's how I wake up in the morning. <laughs> I tend to be... Now, I know there's some of you... I know there's people out there that are like 6 a.m., 5.30 a.m. They just spring out of bed and they can't wait to attack the day. I, I get it. You're out there. I am super jealous. I envy you. Uh, but I tend to be on the melancholy side, kind of how I'm wired, you know, and I can take comfort that there have been great pastors in the history of the church that are like that and suffer uh, or, or have that tendency. And I've also, le- I've also learned through practice that really it's just a matter of getting through the first 20 minutes. You get through the first 20 minutes of everything, things are almost miraculously better. However, that's not what I do naturally. What I'm really good at what I do really well without trying at all is being super anxious and giving voice to all those voices in my head that want to tell me all the problems and why everything is going south. <laughs> Amen? Can I get a witness? <laughs> uh, listen, this is a morning prayer in the first lament of this psalm. You can almost hear the voices in David's head. Listen, verses 1 and 2. Oh, Lord... David wakes up in the morning. How many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. You can hear him almost saying, hey, wake up, David. You know, you're surrounded by enemies. (laughs) Everyone's plotting against you. God has forgotten about you. There is no salvation for you. You might as well just hang it up right now. That's David's voices in his head, you know, and the basic taunt, the basic taunt that comes at the end of that little diatribe is there is no salvation for him in God. And that can take a various form depending on what emphasis you put on it. Maybe you're the kind of person that feels like there is no salvation in God. In other words, God doesn't care or God is absent or somehow God has failed you. 
And the temptation, the satanic bait that gets laid out on the table in that case is, well, I've got to do something. I've got to fix it. I have to find some way for, I have to find some sort of salvation on my own, some sort of satisfaction in life, which the Bible calls idolatry. And you can like plug your flavor of whatever that is right in there. Maybe your career, maybe uh, fame, money, maybe it's sex, maybe it's drugs, maybe it's relationships. It could be very good things. It could be things that would be very good if they were done in an act of worship uh, in, in, the sense, in, in, in an effort to glorify God. But when they are done in an effort to gain ultimate satisfaction out of life and to replace the salvation of God, they utterly fail because they just don't have the power to do that. They become the normalized version of tapping on every surface that we run across. The repetitive, over and over again, desperate attempt to quiet the minds, the voices in our head, some repetitive act of idolatry. Maybe you hear that and your focus is there is no salvation for him. Maybe you know God's out there. Maybe you believe God is out there. But he's just not out there for you. And you believe that. And that's what the voice tells you in your head. And maybe it's because, not because you think that God has failed you, but because you know that you have failed God. And that you've sinned against God. And you think... I deserve for God to abandon me. I deserve for God uh, to not be there for me. And the solution often, the bait, the satanic bait that's thrown out for that side of the equation uh, is just the, des- just the giving up and immersing yourself in the very sin that put you in that desperate and awful situation to begin with. You know what's fa- fascinating to me about this passage is that that's, that's the, I think, the category that David is in. David is facing uh, destruction from his own son, but he knows in his head, he knows in his head that his, uh, that he had in his life taken advantage of a girl that didn't belong to him, and that sin started to filter down into his family so that one of his sons, Amnon, took advantage of a girl that didn't belong to him, and this son Absalom took revenge on that son and killed him, and because of the sin in David's life, he couldn't address it in the right way, and it festered to the point where Absalom became angry and bitter and resentful and took advantage of that and was coming against David, and David in his mind is realizing, I started, I set that ball in motion. And what does he do, though? Does he hide? Does he run? in that understanding that it was him that started that ball rolling? He doesn't. He cries out to God. David, knowing who God is, he goes straight to God. He doesn't run from him. He doesn't hide from him because he understands that God is a God of grace. That we're all, basically, if we're honest, that's all of us. We're all in that category. We could all... 
point to sins in ways that we feel like we failed to God and the way we feel like we should be punished for it. And that's, that's our natural state. That's what the fallen heart tells us. But what the Bible tells us about God is that he is a God of grace, a God of mercy. He's a God of forgiveness. He's a God that doesn't even remember our sins. He is a God who has wiped all those things away. Like we said earlier, he has wiped away our sins like the mist. It's a picture of the sun rising up over the dawn and the heat of God's brilliance and beauty and light just evaporating all of our sin so that it just doesn't exist anymore because of his brilliance and his light. And David knows that. So what he does is he runs to God whom he remembers has been faithful in everything in the past. And through that, second part, comes a supernatural state of trust. A supernatural state of trust. Last week, I was having one of my like anxious weeks, kind of worried about this and worried about that, uh, and uh, ended up having lunch early last week with a friend of mine who has a similar background from mine, similar background of, of homelessness and drug addiction and extreme poverty. And here's the thing. We were sitting there having lunch in this super swanky, expensive Brazilian steakhouse. And all of a sudden, it just kind of rushed over both of us. We're like, just this overwhelming realization of how good God has been to us over the last decade. Not just because we're eating the super swanky uh, Brazilian steakhouse, uh, and, you know, we used to either raid dumpsters to eat or steal cans of chili from the grocery store to survive, but just it just was it brought to mind everything that God had done over the last decade. We started reminiscing about these things and that we had families, we had wives who loved us, we had children, and we started thinking about uh, the real the proverbs, the general proverbs about God caring and taking care of the righteous, meaning those righteous in Christ, and that that was generally true, and that God had just overwhelmed us with goodness and blessing. And that when we really, when we stood back and looked at the big scheme and the, the, just the, the, the video of our whole lives over the last decade, all the stuff that I was super stressed out about when I went into that lunch just kind of melted away as I remembered God's faithfulness and goodness to me in myriad ways over the past 10 years. And that's what basically David does in this psalm. He remembers everything that God has got him through, all the trouble that he's faced, all the people that have tried to kill him. But God had put his promise on David and his promise on David's life that David would be king and that one of David's descendants would always be king until the final king came. And David put his trust in that. He remembers everything that God had already done to save him. Listen what he says. Verses 3 through 6, he says, But you, O Lord, taking his mind off himself and putting his eyes on God, he says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. He's remembering. These are promises. He's remembering what's true about God. He remembers that God is a shield. What is a shield? You think about ancient warriors with a shield and a sword. They would block sword blows with their shield. They would also like hide underneath it if a volley of arrows would come at them. But if I think about that image, you know, it, 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 can seem, uh, it can seem inadequate because what if one of those arrows gets through? What if I don't hold the shield right? What if an air attack comes from the back? I'm constantly going to be having a shield, a little shield. I'm not going to feel, I don't know about you, but that's not like a full-on Kevlar armored suit of body armor. A shield I wouldn't feel all that safe. But what does it say about the shield? It says, it's not a regular shield. It says, a shield all around me. <laughs> it's a shield that encompasses him. It's like a force field protecting him on the sides, in the back, so he could rest in that. He didn't have to trip out about whether he was holding the shield in the right direction. He just had to remember God has promised to be a shield to me from danger. Nothing gets through that he doesn't let through. Anything he lets through is for my good and my growth. And he becomes like Robert Duvall in Apocalypse Now. Remember that movie? He's, uh, he plays Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore. He's the air cav colonel. They want to surf, so they take a beach from the Vietnamese army so that they can surf for a day. And the whole time, the Vietnamese are lobbing mortars onto the beach, yards away from everyone. And everybody else is diving into the sand every time a mortar goes off, except for Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore. He's just walking around, giving orders and directions like nothing's going on. He's completely confident that he's either going to be okay or he's going to get hit. And whether he dives or jumps or runs... Or whatever he does, what's going to happen is what's going to happen. Now imagine if you have a shield all around you, a force field from God. That can be our attitude. We can go through life with that kind of trust and confidence and rest, really, rest. God has us. God has us protected. Even the stray arrow is guided by the Lord, and so we're safe. He is a shield all about us. He also says that God is his glory. You are my glory. Now think about that. That is an ancient Near Eastern king with all the opulence and wealth and fanfare uh, that went with ancient Near Eastern kings, all of that earthly glory. And David is saying, basically, that's not my glory. God is my glory. What is he saying? He's saying that all of those self-salvation strategies, all of those things that we turn to outside of God's salvation to bring us satisfaction, even if you were at the status of an ancient Near Eastern king, all of that is dust. It's temporary. doesn't last. But his glory is God. His glory is what he has from God. His, uh, his status as an adopted son the promise of God on him that he is an an heir, that he will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. The same is true for us. What does the Bible say is true about us? We are co-heirs with Jesus. So whether you've got a lot, whether you've got a little, 
Whether you're living in La Jolla, whether you're living in a cardboard box out front, if you belong to Christ, you can know that God is your glory and that His glory, He is giving you the status of the inheritance of the saints in light. That's who we are. That's who we are. And then he says that he's, God is the lifter of his head. It's like an ancient Hebrew way of saying that God is able to restore all things and bring all things back to right order and health. And because of God, and because of God and who he is, David knows that he has the power not just to restore in an earthly sense, but to restore in a supernatural sense of being glorified in heaven. And so listen, he, changed, you know, he stops focusing on everybody out there, everything that's going wrong, the voices in his head, and he starts thinking about what he knows to be true about God, what the promises that God has given him are, and what's the result? He goes to sleep. <laughs> he takes a nap, or he goes to sleep and has a great night's sleep. It's like this perfect picture of rest, of this supernatural peace of Christ that overtakes his heart so much so that he's able to just lay down even in the midst of all that trouble and go to sleep and have a great night's sleep. Doesn't that sound good? And here's the kicker. When he wakes up, things have gotten worse. Things have gotten worse. Now people aren't just saying stuff about him There are thousands who have arrayed in war against him. Things went from bad to worse. But it didn't matter because it wasn't about things at all anymore. It was about who God was. What God had promised didn't matter. And that's that's so crucial to understand, man, because you will never be able to control the things. You'll never be able to hold tight enough onto the things. That's totally out of your control. Markets come, markets go. Fame comes, fames go. People come, people go. If you base your security and your salvation on things, you will always, always be anxious. But if you base it on eternal truth, if you base it on the promises of God, the things that cannot be shaken, it produces in us a supernatural peace. It can't be shaken no matter what shakes all around you. And that's what God wants for us. He wants that kind of peace for us. Uh, and maybe, some, maybe someone's thinking, okay, so this is like, this is like some kind of like uh, religious version of positive thinking, or this is like some kind of self-help book where you just think these positive thoughts and you convince yourself of these wonderful things and you feel better. Uh, that would be true if it weren't for the historical reality that founds and, and, and is the foundation for everything that I've just said. This isn't just wishful thinking. This is all based in the reality of who Jesus was and what he's done for us. Uh, and that's the third part. The finished, the supernatural peace comes from 
uh, not just wishful thinking, but through the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. Now, this psalm, this psalm ends, this psalm is a song of lament, but it's also uh, what we call an imprecatory psalm, meaning it's a fancy word to say it, like kind of throws out some curses on our enemies at the end. Uh, and that can be really uncomfortable for people when we hear David crying out, Oh God, strike all my enemies on the cheek and break the teeth of the wicked. That's kind of strong language. Uh, think about someone's teeth getting broken in their mouth. That's, that's very strong language, and we're really uncomfortable about that. I had a friend in seminary named Joseph Randall. He took all the imprecatory psalms and turned them into rap songs, and they worked perfect. <laughs> but because they were violent and they were so harsh and, and strong in their language, but to think about us praying this song, would you really feel comfortable and, you know, getting up in the morning, calming the voices in your head, and then asking the Lord to break the teeth of your enemies in their mouths? That's kind of harsh for us to understand. And they, we, uh, we have trouble with that because we have led relatively sheltered lives. We've been at peace. We haven't uh, undergone war or great famine, or most of us at least, have not been uh, seriously wronged by evil in the world, like people who have gone through war or in war-torn nations. Some of us have, for sure, but for the most part, that's kind of hard for us to understand. But I had a, you know, was wrestling through this, thinking about these psalms. I had one of my professors in school said, he said, that sounds like harsh language, but you actually, you probably pray that very same thing every day. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, well, whenever you pray the Lord's Prayer, you pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And then you pray, thy kingdom come. What does that mean? What do you pray that? That means, of course, we like to... I like to think about that, that God's kingdom is coming in my heart. He's, you know, it's recreating me in the image of Jesus. I like to think that God's kingdom is coming through our church uh, as we bring the message of the gospel to San Diego. But there's also the big sense of that is that thy kingdom come means Jesus coming back. Coming back to avenge all wrongs. God, we're told that God is to have vengeance. Uh, to trust him with that. And when Jesus returns, that's what's going to happen. He is going to eliminate evil, and he is going to break the teeth of Satan in his mouth. And we, having a clear view of evil and what evil has done, will rejoice in that. We will rejoice in the fact that God is coming to put an end to evil. That day will come, but it hasn't come yet. And before that day has come, there was another day of judgment that has already come where these same things happen to Jesus. Another professor told me in school once that all the Psalms are really talking about Jesus or they're speaking about Jesus. Either Jesus speaking to us as God or Jesus speaking to God as man. 
but they're all about Jesus. And sometimes I, I wonder as I'm reading through these Psalms, when, when did Jesus, when did he know that? Did he always know it? As he was raised as a boy in, in Jerusalem, listening and, to the Psalms and memorizing the Psalms as every Jewish boy did in his culture, did he always know that when they read Psalm 22 and they said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that that would be him on the cross saying those words? When he read Psalm 3, even though he knew this was a psalm of David, did he always know that it was David, the Spirit speaking through David, talking about the life of Jesus, that he would be surrounded by enemies? That he is our champion, would have ultimate faith in God, that he would be slapped on the cheek and insulted, that he would be broken on the cross for us? I don't know. Maybe he always knew that. Maybe that was part of what Luke says, Jesus growing in wisdom, the humanity of Jesus. What we do know is that all of this is true about Christ. All of these things are what Jesus has done for us to secure the surety uh, that we have salvation in God. That when we fail God and we sin against him, God is not punishing us because he's already punished Jesus on our behalf. Jesus took the insult. Jesus took the brokenness. Jesus took the cross for us. As our high priest. So that when those voices start talking in our head and telling us that God has abandoned us or telling us that our sin is too great, that we can't overcome it, that God couldn't forgive us. That we've failed God or God has failed us, we can turn around and tell the voices in our head, no. I can look out and see the many enemies arrayed against me in the evil in the world and the evil of the satanic forces. I can hear the voices in my head that try to convince me that everything's true, but what I know to be true about God is that he has suffered death on my behalf and that he's undergone the cross in order to win me my salvation. And so I am free and I am saved, not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it tells us about you, what it tells us about what you've done for for us in Christ. Lord, left to our own devices without your word, we would know that you were powerful. We would know that you were majestic. But we would just know you as power, Lord. We would know of your love for us and your mercy in Christ. So we thank you, Lord, that you've shown us that Jesus was the one who had many enemies surrounding him. We thank you that you've shown us Jesus was the one who had many foes, that Jesus was the one who many rose against, that Jesus was the one who people said there was no salvation for him in God as he hung upon the very cross that was purchasing the salvation of the world. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to have the mind of Christ and to know that you are a shield about us. You're a force field. Nothing can harm us, Lord. Everything that happens to us 
is happens by your direct providence that you care for us and that you are protecting us. We pray that you would help us to remember that you and what you have promised us are truly our glory so that we would use all the things of this earth as an act of worship to you. And we pray you would help us to remember that you will lift our heads, that you will bring us out of this evil age and into the glory that you promised us forever and ever. Lord, and I pray that through that, you would fill us with a supernatural sense of peace so that we would be able to sleep well every night, no matter whether things got better or things got worse, that we would know that the thing that truly matters, the victory over sin and death in our future with you has been secured so that we don't have to sweat any of the small stuff, Lord. Help us to have faith in you and know that you have arisen and that the victory is yours. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.